0: Volume three, chapter twenty-four of A Charming Fellow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Charming Fellow by Francis Eleanor Trollope. Volume three, chapter twenty-four. The next day, medical evidence was forthcoming as to the insanity of David Powell, who had been removed to the county asylum. Testimony was moreover given by many persons showing that the preacher's mind had long been disordered. Even the widow Thimbleby's evidence, given with many tears went to prove that but she tried with all her might to bear witness to his goodness and clung loyally to her loving admiration for his character he may not be quite in his right senses for matters of this world sobbed the poor woman and he has been sorely tormented by taking up with these doctrines of election but if ever there was an angel sent down to suffer on this earth and help the sorrowful and call sinners to repentance mr powell is that angel i know what he is and i have had other lodgers good kind gentlemen too i don't say to the contrary but overboil their eggs in the morning or leave a lump in their feather-bed and you'd soon get a glimpse of the old adam now with mr powell nothing put him out except sin and even that did but make him the more eager to save your soul several witnesses who had testified on the previous day were re-examined and some new ones were found who swore to having met mr errington going along the road from his own house towards whitford in great agitation and asking every one he met if they had seen his wife the hour was such that to the best of their belief it was impossible he should have had such an interview as powell described with the deceased between the time at which the cook swore he left his own house and their meeting him in the road on this point however the evidence was somewhat conflicting but the whitford clocks were well known to be conflicting also st mary's being always foremost with its jangling bell the town-hall clock coming next, except occasionally, when it hastened to be first with apparently quite capricious zeal, and the mellow chimes of St. Chad's, that were heard far over town and meadow, closing the chorus with their sweet cadence. There certainly appeared to be no cause, no conceivable motive, for Algernon Errington to have committed the crime. Many witnesses combined to show with what sweetness and good humour he bore his wife's jealous tempers, and besides it was notorious that he had hoped, through her influence, to obtain assistance and promotion from her uncle, Lord Seely. Whereas, on the other hand, there did seem to be several motives at work to induce the unfortunate lady to put an end to her own existence. There could be little doubt that she had committed the post-office robberies, and the fear of detection had weighed on her mind. Moreover, that she had for some time past been made unhappy by jealousy and discontent, and had contemplated making away with herself, was proved by several scraps of writing besides that which her husband had found, and produced at the inquest the first day. In brief, no one was surprised when the foreman of the coroner's jury delivered a verdict to the effect that the deceased lady had committed suicide while under the influence of temporary insanity, and added a few words stating the opinion of the jury, that Mr. Algernon Errington's character was quite unstained by the accusation of a maniac, who had been proved to have been subject to insane delusions for some time past. It was just the sort of verdict that everyone had expected, and the general sympathy with Algernon still ran high. As for him, he got away from the blue bell as quickly as possible after the inquest was over, slipping away by a back door where a closed fly was waiting for him. When he reached his home he locked himself into the dining-room and sat down on the sofa, with closed eyes and his body leaning listlessly against the cushions, as if all vital force were gone from him. The prevailing, and for a time the only sensation he felt, was one of utter weariness. He was so completely exhausted that the restful attitude, the silence, and the solitude seemed positive luxuries. He was scarcely conscious of his escape; he felt merely that the strain was over, and that voice, face, and limbs might sink back from the terrible tension he had held them in to a natural lassitude. But by and by he began to realise the danger he had passed, and to exult in his new sense of freedom. Castalia being removed, it seemed as if all troubles must be removed with her. The funeral of mrs Algernon Errington was to take place on the following day, and it was known that Lord Seely would be present at it if it were possible for him to make the journey from London. It was said that he had been very ill, but was now better, and would use his utmost endeavours to pay that mark of respect to his niece's memory. mrs Errington, indeed, talked of my lord's coming as proof of his sympathy with her boy. But the world knew better than that. It knew, by some mysterious means, that Lord Seely had quarrelled with Algernon and when his lordship did appear in Whitford, and took up his quarters at the Blue Bell, rumours went about to the effect that he had refused to see young Errington, and had remained shut up in his own room, attended by his physician. This, however, was not true. Lord Seely had seen Algernon, and spoken with him, but he had not touched his proffered hand. He had said no word to him of sympathy, he had barely looked at him. The poor old man was overpowered by grief for Castalia, and it was in vain for Algernon to put on a show of grief." About a matter of fact, Lord Seely would even now have found it difficult to think that Algernon was telling him a point-blank lie, but on a matter of feeling it was different. Algernon's words and voice rang false and hollow, and the old man shrank from him. Lord Seely had come down to Whitford on getting the news of Castalia's terrible death, without knowing any particulars about it. Those were not the days when the telegraph brought a budget of intelligence from the most distant parts of the earth every morning a few hurried and confused lines were all that lord Seely had received but they were sufficient to make him insist on performing the journey to whitford at once lady Seely had tried to impress on him the necessity of shaking off young errington now that castalia was gone wash your hands of him valentine my lady had said if poor cassie has done this desperate deed it's he that drove her to it smooth-faced young villain to all this lord Seely had made no reply but in his own mind he had almost resolved to help algernon to a place abroad It was what his poor niece would have desired. But then, after his arrival in Whitford, all the painful details of the coroner's inquest were made known to him. He made inquiries in all directions, and learned a great deal about his niece's life in the little town. The prominent feelings in his mind were pity and remorse, pity for Castalia's unhappy fate, and acute remorse for having been so weak as to let her marriage take place, without any attempt to interfere, despite his own secret conviction that it was an ill-assorted and ill-omened one you couldn't have helped it my lord said the friendly physician to whom he poured out some of the feelings that oppressed his heart perhaps not perhaps not but i ought to have tried my poor dear unhappy girl on the day of the funeral lord Seely stood side by side with algernon at castalia's grave in duckwell churchyard but when it was over they parted and drove back to whitford in separate carriages lord Seely was to return to london early the next morning but before he went away he determined to pay a visit to the county lunatic asylum and see David Powell. On the day of the funeral Algernon had spoken a few words to Lord Seely about his wish to get away from the painful associations, which must henceforward haunt him in Whitford, and had reminded his lordship of the promise made in London. But Lord Seely had made no definite answer, and moreover he had said that, by his doctor's advice, he must decline a visit which Algernon offered to make to him that evening. Was the pompous little ass going to throw him over after all? In the course of that afternoon he heard that old Maxfield intended to come down on him pitilessly for the full amount of the bills he held. A reaction had set in in public sentiment. Tradesmen, who could not get paid, and whose hopes of eventual payment were greatly damped by the coolness of Lord Seely's behaviour to his nephew-in-law, began to feel their indignation once more override their compassion. The two servants at Ivy Lodge asked for their wages, and declared that they did not wish to remain there another week. Algernon's position at the post office was forfeited he knew that he could not keep it, even if he would. It began to appear that the removal of Castalia had not, after all, removed all troubles from her husband's path. But the heaviest blow of all was to come. Lord Seely left Whitford without seeing him again, and sent back unopened a note, which Algernon had written, begging for an interview, with these words written outside the cover, in a trembling hand, "'Dare not to write to me or importune me more!' Algernon received this late at night, and before noon the next day the fact was known all over Whitford. People began to say that Lord Seely had obtained access to David Powell, had spoken with him, and had gone away convinced of the substantial truth of his testimony, that his lordship had left orders that Powell should lack no comfort or attention, which his unhappy state permitted of his enjoying, and that he had strongly expressed his grateful sense of the poor preacher's efforts to save his niece. From London, Lord Seeley— who had heard that Miss Bodkin had visited Duckwell Farm while his niece lay dead there, and had placed flowers on her unconscious breast, sent a morning ring and a letter, the contents of which Minnie communicated to no one but her parents. Nevertheless, its contents were discussed pretty widely, and were said to be of a nature very damnatory to Algernon Arrington's character. However, the painful things that were said in Whitford could not hurt him, for he had gone, disappeared in the night like a thief, as his creditors said and no one could say whither chapter twenty four chapter twenty five conclusion our tale is almost told the last words that need saying can be briefly said when some weeks had passed away mrs errington received a letter from her son demanding a remittance to be sent forthwith post restante to a little seaport town on the italian riviera he had not during the interval left his mother in absolute ignorance as to what had become of him but had sent her a few brief lines from london saying that he had been obliged to leave whitford in order to escape being put in prison for debt that his present intention was to go abroad and that she should hear again from him before long algernon had been so quick in his movements that he managed to be in town before the story of lord seely's having cast him off had had time to be circulated amongst his acquaintances there and he was enabled as a result of his activity to obtain from miss Matchin stubbs and others several letters of introduction calculated to be of use to him abroad he was described by mrs Matchin stubbs as a nephew of lord Seely and her intimate friend who was travelling on the continent to recruit his health after the shock of his wife's sudden death he had brought away from whitford such few jewels belonging to his dead wife as were of any value and he sold them in london he furnished himself handsomely with such articles as were desirable for a gentleman of fortune travelling for his pleasure and allowed the west-end tradesmen to whom the honourable john patrick price had recommended him during his brilliant london season to write down against him in their books some very extortionate charges for the same his outfit being accomplished in this inexpensive manner he was enabled to travel with as much comfort as was compatible in those days with a journey from london to calais and he stepped on to the french shore with a considerable sum of money in his pocket for a long time the tidings of him that reached whitford were uncertain and conflicting then they began to arrive at even wider and wider intervals and finally after mrs errington left the town they ceased altogether to reach the general world of whitfordians the real history of the circumstances which induced mrs errington to leave the home of so many years was known to very few persons it was this about a twelvemonth after algernon's departure mrs errington made a sudden journey to london and on her return she confided to her old friend dr bodkin that she had sold out of the funds nearly the whole sum from which her little income was derived and transmitted it to algy who had an absolute need for the money which she considered paramount but my dear soul you have ruined yourself cried the doctor aghast algernon will repay me sir replied the poor old woman drawing herself up with the ghost of her old anchorme grandeur the upshot was that dr bodkin in concert with one or two other old friends of her late husband made some representations on her behalf to mr Philthorpe, the wealthy bristol merchant who was as the reader may remember a cousin of dr errington and that mr Philthorpe benevolently allowed his cousin's widow a small annuity which together with the few pounds that still remained to her of her own enabled her to live in decent comfort but she professed herself unable to remain in whitford and removed to a cottage in dorrington where she had a kind friend in the wife of the headmaster of the proprietary school, whom we first presented to the reader as little Rhoda Maxfield. Mrs. Diamond, as she was now, lived in a very handsome house, and wore very elegant dresses, and was looked upon as a personage of some importance in Dorrington and its vicinity. Her husband had decidedly opposed a proposition she made to him to receive Mrs. Errington as an inmate of his home, but he put no further constraint on Rhoda's affectionate solicitude about her old friend and the two women drove together and sewed together and talked together and their talk was chiefly about that exiled victim of unmerited misfortune algernon errington rhoda preserved her faith in the ancram glories and although she acknowledged to herself that algernon had treated her badly he was invested in her mind with some mysterious immunity from the obligations that bind ordinary mortals a visitor who was often cordially welcomed at dorrington by matthew diamond was miss Chubb and the kind-hearted little spinster endured a vast amount of snubbing and patronage from her old enemy, on the battleground of polite society, Mrs. Errington, with much charitable sweetness. Old Max lived to see his daughter's first-born child, but he was unable to move from his bed for many months before his death. Perhaps it was the period of quiet reflection thus obtained, when the things of this world were melting away from his grasp, which occasioned the addition of a codicil to the old man's will that surprised most of his acquaintance he had settled the bulk of his property on his daughter at her marriage and in his original testament had bequeathed the whole of the residue to her also but the codicil set forth that his only and beloved daughter being amply provided for and his son james inheriting the stock fixtures and good-will of his flourishing business together with a house and furniture jonathan maxfield felt that he was doing injustice to no one by bequeathing the sum of three thousand pounds to miss minnie bodkin as a mark of respect and admiration and he moreover left one hundred pounds free of duty to that god-fearing member of the wesleyan society richard gibbs now living as groom in the service of orlando pawkins esq of pudcombe hill a bequest which sensibly embittered the flavor of the sermon preached by the unlegacied brother jackson on the next sunday after old max's funeral dr bodkin still lives and rules in whitford grammar school his wife's life is brightened by the sight of her minnie's increased health and strength but she has never quite forgiven matthew diamond and has been heard to say that young mr diamond's children are the most singularly uninteresting she ever saw of many herself the chronicle hitherto records a life of useful benevolence undisfigured by ascetic affectation or the assumption of any pious livery whatever she keeps her old delight in all the beautiful things of art and nature and old max's legacy has enabled her to enjoy some foreign travel she is still in the first prime of womanhood and more beautiful than ever but at the last accounts poor mr warlock has not been tortured by the spectacle of any successful rival for his part he goes on worshipping miss bodkin with hopeless fidelity for a long time Minnie continued to visit david powell in the lunatic asylum at stated periods he generally recognized her and the sight of her seemed to soothe and comfort him after a while he was pronounced cured and left the asylum but his madness returned on him at intervals and he would voluntarily go and place himself under restraint when he felt the black fit coming he did not live very long being assailed by a mortal consumption but as his body wasted his mind grew clearer stronger and more serene and before his death Minnie had the satisfaction to hear him profess a humble faith in the divine goodness and a fearless confidence in the mysterious hand that was leading him even as a little child into the shadowy land there was as large a concourse of people at his burial as had ever thronged to hear his fiery preaching on Whitmeadow. His memory became surrounded by a saintly radiance in the imaginations of the poor. Stories of his goodness and his afflictions, and the final ray of peace which God sent to cheer his last moments, were long retailed amongst the Whitford Methodists, and his grave is still bright with carefully tended flowers. Of Algernon Errington, the strangest rumours were circulated for a time. Some said that he had become croupier at a foreign gambling-table. Others declared that he had married a West Indian heiress with a million of money, and was living in Florence, in unheard-of luxury. Others, again, affirmed that they had the best authority for believing that he had gone to the United States, and had appeared on the stage there with immense success. However, the remembrance of him passed away from men's minds in Whitford within a few years, in London within a few months but it was a long time before jack price left off recounting his final interview with errington that young Ancrum, you know captivating way of his own what on my honour the rascal borrowed ten pounds of me ready money sir down on the nail bedad it was a tour de force for i never have a shilling in my pocket for my own use but ancram would coax the little birds off the bushes as they say in my part of the world Principle? oh devil a rag of principle in his whole composition what i wonder what the deuce has become of him I give you my word and honour, he was really, really now, a charming fellow. End of chapter 25 End of a Charming Fellow